Well, good morning, Trinity. It is so good to be here with you this morning. This is, uh, I'll be honest with you, it's a little different. Um, this has been my home church for like 20 years, and uh, um, it's, 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 come, it's weird, it's different coming back as a guest uh, preacher. I've been so used to this podium, um, but it's, it's really good to be here. I've been anticipating this time with you for um, a while now, and um, this text that I'm preaching this morning was really assigned to me about a month and a half ago. And it so happened that um, at Crosswalk, we are in the middle of a sermon series in the book of Luke, and I preached this sermon last week at Crosswalk. So, um, well, that's God's providence for you. I'm not going to start my time yet because I want to just give a few updates about us and also Crosswalk. Tim asked me to give you guys an update so that you can be praying for us. And your church who needs your prayer, your love, and your support. So last Sunday, we had Casey and Stephen Klebs at Crosswalk. Uh, we believe in the gospel mission that God has called Stephen and Casey to. So we had Casey share her heart about missions and specifically the unreached people groups. She did an amazing job. And so, Trinity, you can be very, very proud of her. She always does an excellent job just reminding us of how important our gospel mission is. Grateful for the partnership that we have. Because as a church, beginning this year, we began supporting Casey and Stephen financially. And so we have that partnership with you, Trinity. So for Melinda Jackson and I, it's weird that I'm not addressing my son Mason, but he's here with you. So for Melinda Jackson and I, we have sought to put our hands to the plow and serve at Crosswalk. And the church has cared for us so well. So I'm happy to report to you, church, that Crosswalk has blessed us so much. We are so happy to be there. It's a labor of love, for sure. Um, we've enjoyed getting to know the people there. We've enjoyed getting to get plugged in. I lead a small group. And um, life is good with the help of God. Even in the midst of struggle and stress and hardship. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Currently, as a pastor elder team, we are finishing up, um, polishing up our bylaws, and soon we'll begin to adopt and develop our membership curriculum. So that's what's happening there. We're also doing some building renovations to help us be prepared for the next generation, for the future generation. So if you think of us and if you can remember those things, please pray for us. Well, here's the background of our text. The title is Lessons from the Plain. Lessons from the Plain. In chapter 4, Jesus began his earthly ministry. He's been teaching with authority. And with power, he's been healing various diseases, and he's been casting out demons. 
In chapter 5, Jesus began calling his first disciples, Peter, James, and John. He also called this one tax collector, Levi, the robber, extortionist. And he also cleansed a leper. This signals to us that Jesus has come to draw near to the marginalized, the outcast, the poor, those who are hurting, the ceremonially unclean. Jesus has drawn near to people like you and me. Chapter 6 Jesus called the rest of his disciples, which he named his apostles. And this is the beginning of Jesus creating a community of believers, which will soon turn into the church. Verse 20 says, And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he began teaching we get to have the opportunity to take a long-distance class through distance learning in Jesus' sermon on the plain. Jesus taught what it would look like and what it would mean to be followers of Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus. Some will experience poverty. Some will experience hunger. Some will experience weeping. Some will experience persecution. Some will be reviled. Some will be neglected and abused. Some will encounter enemies through persecution. And he called on them and us today to love our enemies. We are to do good to them, to bless them, and to pray for them. Today in in verses 37 through 42, Jesus addresses the topics of relationships and discipleship. Jesus called them and us to not judge one another, to not condemn one another. He calls us to forgive one another, to pay close attention to who we follow. The problem with the original audience and us is that even in the context of a local church, we can be judgmental towards one another. Even in the context of a local church, we are prone to condemn one another. We are given to to want to point out the sins of others while at the same time neglecting to address our very own. We can have a hard time forgiving one another. Well, Luke, today in our text, shows us how and why we should treat each other the way Jesus treated us, with grace, forgiveness, and humility. My goal this morning is to help us see that it is the gospel that motivates us to do all of these things that God is calling us to do in our text. Will you please pray with me? Father, We praise you for who you are. You are our God who loves us. You never change. You remain faithful. 
Your love is steadfast. And we confess we are a people who are always in need. We need you now. Grant us the gift of illumination so that we may behold the wondrous works of your law. Father, use your word to wash your bride, the church, as white as snow. Sanctify your bride, Father. Build up your bride, Father. Edify and strengthen your church so that we can be faithful ambassadors of Christ, so that we can be strengthened to proclaim the gospel to the lost and dying world. We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak now to us through me. Help us to focus our eyes on you. Help us to fix and gaze our hearts and our minds on Christ Jesus who bled on the cross and died for us to reconcile us back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Gregory L. Jones, in his book, Embodying Embodying Forgiveness, tells a story about a Turkish officer who encountered grace, forgiveness, and humility. He writes, A Turkish officer raided and looted an Armenian home. He killed the aged parents and gave the daughters to the soldiers, keeping the eldest daughter to himself. Sometime later, she escaped and trained as a nurse. As time passed, she found herself in a ward of Turkish officers. One night, by the light of a lantern, she saw the face of this officer. He was so gravely ill that without exceptional nursing, he would die. The days passed, and he recovered. One day, the doctor stood by the bed with her and said to him, But for her devotion to you, you would be dead. He looked at her and said, We have met before, haven't we? Yes, she said, we have met before. Why didn't you kill me? He asked. She replied, I am a follower of him who said, Love your enemies. The Armenian nurse could have allowed this Turkish officer to die, but she treated him with grace, forgiveness, and humility. Here's the main burden of the sermon church. As followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, the gospel calls us, Jesus calls us to treat others the same way that he treated us with grace, forgiveness, and humility. As disciples of Jesus, he has called us to live radical lives in light of the gospel. He calls us to extend grace by not judging one another. He calls us to extend mercy by not condemning one another. He calls us to extend forgiveness, the same forgiveness that we received from Christ Jesus. He calls us to practice humility in caring for one another. So let's look at our text under these two main headings. First, Jesus' lesson on relationships, and second, Jesus' lesson on discipleship. 
Would you look with me at verse 37 and 38a? Trinity. This is God's word. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. So how should we treat one another the way Jesus treated us? By not judging one another. Today our culture is about not judging. Sometimes our culture gets it right, but with the wrong motivation. People don't want to be judged because they want to do what they want to do. They want to continue doing what they want to do. The world sees judging as a wicked act. But Jesus commanded us not to judge one another as a way to love one another. Now, I want to be very clear here. This command not to judge is not a command to not judge at all. Sometimes in life, we must make judgment calls. As people, we need to decide what is right or what is wrong. As people, we have responsibilities, which calls for best judgment. As parents, we had to make a judgment call on whether to homeschool our boys or to send them to private school or public school. Employees need to make a judgment call on hiring the best applicant. People need to choose between renting or buying. Students need to make a judgment call on which university to attend and which, which career field to major in. Other times, we are not in a position to judge. Melinda and I don't want to make the judgment call on who, for example, our youngest son should marry. Now, we can give him some counsel, but we are not going to decide that for him. In our text, Jesus is calling us not to judge others because we can't see things clearly. We're not to judge people because our judgment is not perfect. That can be sinful. Our opinions at best is imperfect. Our perception at best is imperfect. When I was in high school, I grew up with a friend who went to a different school, and we literally grew up from elementary school all the way through high school. And we always hung out. We played sports. We played basketball. And we played football. And he was always better than me in every sport. And I judged him. I treated him as one who was prideful and arrogant. And I couldn't be so wrong. Today he treats me with respect and kindness and courtesy. Jesus calls us not to, to, to be judgmental in our thoughts and in the attitudes of our hearts. Now, how can one know when we are being judgmental? One commentator put it this way. 
A judgmental person is someone who reaches unjust conclusions about someone else's motives. He or she is quick to criticize, usually putting things in the worst of possible light. I confess to you, church, that I am prone to be judgmental, and at times that has gotten me into some big trouble. I am prone to assume the worst in people instead of assuming the best in people. I call that charitable judgment. One Saturday, I got voluntold to run an errand for other people. And it was during a time where my plate was just overflowing with responsibilities. It wasn't like I was just sitting around watching TV. It was a time in, in, in a season where there were two funerals. I had a wedding in between. And then I had premarital counseling for like six to, six to eight weeks. Um, not including the preaching load that I, that I take at Crosswalk. And just caring for the church in general. Going through the bylaws process. I was just completely full in terms of responsibilities. I could not take on one more. And then I got voluntold to do an errand. And in my sinfulness at my house, I see individuals sitting around not doing anything and in my mind, I said, why couldn't he do it or he do it? I assumed that Melinda was the one who voluntold me. And in my heart, I'd already gotten angry at her. Come to find out it wasn't her who voluntold me. Trinity. How have you judged someone based on your imperfect perception and put them in bad light? Church, do we give judgmental looks at homeless people? Do we treat a divorced woman differently than a single woman who's never been married? We are called not to judge one another because we are horrible judges. There is only one true judge. His name is Jesus. He is the only perfect judge. He is omniscient. He's perfect in wisdom. He's perfect in knowledge. Jesus is the perfect judge, and he knows all of our sin, yet he didn't judge us based on our sins. Instead, he extended his saving grace to us who are undeserving sinners. Jesus also called us not to condemn others. We condemn people we, when we pronounce them guilty, when we keep a distance from them because they're going through some kind of nasty divorce. We condemn people or pronounce them guilty when we choose not to associate with them because they have this huge drug problem or pornography problem. We condemn people or pronounce them guilty when we don't share the gospel with them based on their vaccination stance or their sexual orientation or their gender identification. When we do these things, church, we need to plead for God's help. 
The one who had the right to condemn us didn't sentence us to death. Instead, he extended mercy and he laid down his life on the cross for us. Jesus also calls us to give and to forgive. Verse 38 tells us that every Christ follower who gives to the needs of others will be given much in return. Every Christian who gives to finance the gospel mission understands how important our gospel mission is, how beautiful the gospel message is, how the power of the gospel can transfer someone from what is dead to life. How the power of the gospel can transform someone from living in the darkness of sin and into Christ's marvelous light. Notice, Jesus didn't specify an amount when he said to give. I like to say it really isn't about equal giving. It's more about equal sacrifice. Some who give little may be making an equal sacrifice with those who give a lot. Listen, church, when we give to God, he gives us so much more. Have you ever tried to outgive God? I suggest to you, by experience, it is not possible. It is simply not possible to outgive God. Our late friend Jeff, Jeffrey Arndt tried to outgive God, and I watched literally with my own eyes God outgive Jeffrey. Now, Jeffrey never became a millionaire, but God gave him more than what he needed. Jesus gives us a picture of how generous God is when we give to others. He says, This good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, will be measured back to you. Now, since we are not an agricultural-driven society, what does this mean to us today? What does this verse mean to us? This saying is from an ancient custom. Here's how one commentator put it. The seller crouches on the ground with the measure between his legs. First of all, he fills the measure three quarters full and and gives it a good shake with a rotary motion to make the grain settle down. And then he fills the measure to the top and gives it another shake. Next, he presses the corn together strongly with both hands. Finally, he heaps it into a cone, tapping it carefully to press the grains together. From time to time, he bores a hole in the cone and pours a few more grains into it until there is literally no more room for a single grain. In this way, the purchaser is guaranteed an absolutely full measure. It cannot hold more church. This is how generous our God is when one gives to the needs of others. Now, Trinity, 
try to reject the Western mindset of God's blessings. In America, we tend to connect God's blessings with finances and material things, though he does bless people financially and materially. But blessings can come in different forms. Sometimes, when we get a chance, when things slow down, I love it when Melinda and I can just sit in our backyard on a cool day and just be together. When those days happen like that, I feel like I'm the richest man in the world. You see, church, people living in underdeveloped countries feel more blessed because they have God in their lives than those who are unbelievers, who live in mansions, who drive exotic cars, who have Olympic-sized pools. God's giving can come from his provision like our home our food, our jobs. Here's the truth, church. God gives us more than what we deserve. Now, some of us will not receive the full amount. Some of us will not receive much on this side of eternity, but all of us will receive the full measure when we are with Jesus because Jesus is our full measure. He is everything. All the earthly longings, all the earthly things will lose its value. Jesus also calls us to forgive those who withhold forgiveness have little to no understanding of what the gospel is. Those who withhold forgiveness have little to no understanding of the gravity of their sin. Those who withhold forgiveness have little to no understanding of the magnitude of God's holiness. Those who withhold forgiveness have little to no understanding of what their sins deserve. And those who withhold forgiveness have little to no understanding what it costs Jesus to forgive. Those who forgive much know they have been forgiven much. Are you with me, church? Jesus calls us to give and to forgive because that is exactly how he treated us. Jesus knew he, Jesus knows all of our sin, past, present, and future, yet he didn't judge us nor con- condemn us. Instead, he loved us by dying on the cross for us. He loved us by extending mercy, and he forgave us. He gave us eternal life when we accepted him as the Lord and Savior of our lives. Trinity, these lessons on relationships are very important to the life of this church, to the life of every church. It's important to every home and every family because we are sinners saved by grace and we still have a sin nature. You are going to sin against each other, it's inevitable. Listen, if you're new to Trinity Community Church, welcome to the hot mess that we're in. If you're looking for the perfect church, 
then you're not in the right place. But if you're looking for a church who loves Jesus, who seek to love one another, then welcome to Trinity Community Church. This is a church full of sinners who are trying to do the best that they can to love Jesus and to love one another. This is a church who loves the gospel because it is not only the message of salvation, but it is also the message of reconciliation. Therefore, when, not if, when we sin against each other, it's going to be aight. It's going to be all right. Because the gospel motivates us towards reconciliation. Colossians 3.13 says, Forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. Ephesians 4.32 says, As you have been forgiven by God in Christ Jesus, forgive one another. Do you hear the gospel there? Church, the gospel is what binds us closer even in the midst of relational conflict, even in the midst of relational strife, the gospel brings us closer. The gospel not only has the power to justify, but it also has the power to sanctify. As we continue to love Jesus, we will become more like him. So in the Sermon in the Plain, First, we learned lessons on relationships. Next, we're going to learn lessons on discipleship. In verses 39 through 42, Jesus is going to tell us a three-part parable. Would you look with me at verse 39? He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? This is the first part of the parable. The obvious answers to both questions are no and yes. Church, this part of the parable serves as a weighty warning to us as a church. Trinity, be careful who you follow. If he or she is blind to the doctrines of grace, then he or she can lead you to a life of legalism in which you will struggle, in which you will not have joy in following Christ. The TV preachers who preach the prosperity gospel will cause you to stumble and fall. You also need to be careful of the reason why you are going to make Trinity Community Church as your home church. Are you here because of a personality? Are you here because of the style of worship? Are you here because of a leader? If you're here because of a personality or a style or a leader, I want to ask you to be careful of the reasons why you're here. Your leaders will sin against you. Style can change. Can I encourage you to be here for the right reasons? Please be here because this church loves Jesus and follows Jesus. 
You see, Jesus will never fail you. Jesus will never change. How can you tell if this church follows and loves Jesus? It's simple, by the message it proclaims. Are the sermons Christ-centered? Are the sermons Jesus-centered? Do the sermons point you to Jesus as the only hope? The obvious, answers are, are, the, the obvious answer is yes. We sang of songs that pointed us to Jesus as the only hope. Do the sermons point to Jesus for divine enablement, for obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit? Are the pastor elders following Jesus? Do they love Jesus? Is that evident in their leadership and in their lives? It is. I believe the answer is yes to all of these questions. How do I know that? It's because I served with them less one. What is the mission of Trinity Community Church? You exist to what? Treasure Christ. What? Grow in Christ and proclaim Christ. You see how Christ-centered this church is? That's a good reason to be here, to follow Jesus with them. Does the church's leadership structure reflect the headship of Jesus? I like to say to people when I describe Trinity that Trinity is Jesus-ruled. It is pastor-elder-led. It is deacon-assisted and congregationally affirmed. How does Jesus then rule Trinity Community Church. Here's the simple answer. Through the faithful expository preaching of his word and application, the Bible. Here's the second part of the parable. A disciple is not above his teacher, verse 40. But everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. The, the meaning of verse 40 is very clear. When the teacher and the student have a close relationship, the, the student will become more and more like his teacher. Now, Jesus is clear here. The student will not be above his teacher, but he will become more like his teacher when he is fully trained. Soon, the student will act and sound like his teacher. Now, this can be very sobering and weighty for me as the primary preaching pastor at Crosswalk. But I am grateful that this text is not about me. Remember the context. Jesus is teaching his disciples here. The primary application is, for, is to follow Jesus, to be fully trained by him so that we can become more like him. This is how we can avoid falling into the pit. As your pastor elder team follows Jesus, follow Jesus with them. Become like Jesus as they aspire to become like Jesus. Last, here's the third part of the parable. Look with me at verses 41 and 42. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eye? 
How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. As disciples of Jesus, sometimes we think that we see things clearly when in reality we don't. We don't see all things clearly. I tend to be very blind to my own sins. I don't see things clearly. This is especially true in many cases, but but especially true in relationships. Whether in the church, in the home, or in the workplace, or the place that we play and work out. We are blind to many things. We don't see things clearly. When I enter into conflict with Melinda, I only see her sin and her contribution to our conflict. I tend to be very blind to my sin and my contribution to the conflict. And when I try to engage Melinda in her sin and her contribution, well, it it never really works out right because I'm doing so blinded by my own log-sized sin. This is why I love this parable. Because it teaches me to to effectively deal with myself introspectively. The log resembles something that is huge, like a supporting beam of a house. The speck resembles something small, like a little splinter from a log. The reason why I can't see clearly in conflict, it's, it's because of the log size of my sin protruding through my eye. Therefore, I have no business trying to remove the speck-sized sin out of Melinda's eye. Notice that Jesus does say that we are to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Church, we are to do this with love. We are to do this with humility. But before we do, we need to remove the log-sized sin out of our own eye first. The problem is we get this, this, this order in reverse. When we reverse the order, this is when Jesus said we are being hypocrites. So what does it look like when one is being hypocritical in this context? Here is how one commentator put it, David Gooding. He said, The very person who criticizes other people is guilty of the most obvious sins of all. He has some glaringly wrong habit or attitude in his life, which everybody else can see. But strangely enough, not only can can he be apparently not, let me repeat that, not only can he apparently not see it himself, but he is the very one who is constantly pointing out other people's minor faults and failings. Church, we are being hypocritical when we blame everyone else for a problem that we are causing. We are hypocritical when we are blaming everyone else when we are the problem. 
We are being hypocrites when we see everyone else's sin as bigger than our own. We are being hypocrites when we spend most of the time, the majority of the time, pointing out the sins of others while at the same time neglecting to take care and do business with our log-sized sin. Therefore, Trinity, before we get into the business of fixing other people's sin, let's do business with God and fix our own sins first. As sinners saved by grace, let's run to the cross. First one to the cross wins. And at the cross, Let's confess our faults, our shortcomings, our failures to our loving Savior. Let's run to Jesus who died on the cross so that we can be forgiven. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Trinity. Jesus paid it all. Therefore, there is, there is forgiveness for everyone in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, us, let us approach the throne of grace through prayer and in humility care for one another by extending grace. Let's follow Jesus. Let's become more like Jesus. Only then, perhaps, you are in a position to care for, one, for someone and their sin. Let's give grace to one another. Let's forgive one another. Let's not judge or condemn each other because we can't see clearly. Jesus is the only one who has perfect vision. The truth is he sees all of our faults, all of our sin, all of our failures, yet he didn't judge us or condemn us. He forgave us. And he gave us eternal life. Oh, what a savior. Church, would you stand with me? Worship team, will you please come up? In light of God's word this morning, we must respond in song. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word that instructs us and teaches us how to treat and love one another. Father, we can only obey your commands through your divine enablement in the personal work of the Holy Spirit. Father, transform us, conform us to the likeness of your Son. Empower us by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Help us to not judge, not condemn one another, but help us to give and to forgive. Father, we thank you for the simple reminder that we need to do heart work first with you and address the log-sized sin in our hearts so that we can see clearly how to care and love one another. We praise you, God. In the name of Jesus, amen.